Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Today's episode of Other People is brought to you by OR Books, publisher of Exile, Rejecting America and Finding the World, the new book by Belen Fernandez. When Fernandez hit 21, she left the United States and has not looked back since. In her new book, she reflects on what it means to be an American in a largely American-made mess of a world. Exile has just hit stores and is generating enthusiastic advanced reviews. Greg Grandin, author of Fordlandia, calls it, quote, a must-read how-to guide for surviving on the periphery. And journalist Liza Featherstone calls Bellin's writing, quote, brilliant, hilarious, compassionate, and unflinching. Exile, Rejecting America and Finding the World by Belen Fernandez, available now from O.R. Books. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have hey, a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've check done. I think it's really beautiful. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're processing things well. I hope you have a good attitude. Uh, I'm a little concerned. I'm a little concerned. I can't get... Uh, I can't get it out of my head. The fact that we spend our lives staring into screens and scientists now say that sitting in a chair and staring into screens is worse than smoking cigarettes and staring into an iPhone can do permanent damage to your cervical spine and eating tofu can give you man boobs. <laughs> what am I talking about? When you spend three hours with a computer, you forget that you have a body. My, uh, my guest today is Josh Gondelman. He is a multi-talented human being. He's a hyphenate. He's a writer. He's a stand-up comedian, and he's a, a television producer. He currently writes and produces for the television program Desus and Marrow. He uh, formerly was a writer on Last Week Tonight, the John Oliver show on HBO. And now he is publishing a book with Harper Perennial. The official pub date is September 17th, so it's about to drop. It's imminent. The book is called Nice Try, Stories of Best Intentions and Mixed Results. And when Josh was out here in Los Angeles just a bit ago, he was kind enough to come over here and talk with me, and I'm going to share that conversation with you right now. Here he is, folks. This is Josh Gondelman, and his book, One More Time, is called Nice Try. 
So I co-wrote a book a couple years ago that was like a pretty straightforward like humor book that I wrote with a friend, uh, my friend Joe Berkowitz, um, who is also an author. He's written, he's on his second solo book now, uh, and it was called... um, you blew it. And it was like kind of a, an etiquette guide that goes through the ways you've already ruined your life. Like this is what you've already done wrong. Uh, and it was very fun and it was like incredibly instructive because the, the sitting in a room and writing a book and then like writing a book that you pitch and then edit and then comes out is like a totally different thing. And so it was very exciting and fun to have gone through that with a friend and, and very like, it was nice to like have each other's backs on that. Well, you can kind of distribute the pain of writing a book between For sure. two people. Oh, absolutely. And we like edited each other. And so like there was stuff that you could enjoy wholeheartedly too. Like, you know how you can write something and you're like, I think that's good. Uh, but I could just get Joe's stuff and be like, oh, that is good. Joe did a good job. And like, it's very, he's so funny. And how do you guys know each other? We met, I think maybe through the internet as well. We had pitched a different project as a book and nobody wanted it, but like people liked us enough that we kind of got this opportunity to pitch a different kind of thing but we had pitched a fake pickup artist guide um called i think the title ended up being getting it wet the nice guy's guide to tricking women from friend zone to bone zone (laughs) (laughs) isn't that like the what what was the book the game the game so it was like a the game parody but like a few years late and i think the the industry feedback we got was that it was like funny but nobody wants a like either people want the real version of the thing because they're like grimy dudes trying to have sex or they don't want to be in that world at all they're like why am i interested in in this character yeah so it's like who's the audience yeah exactly which is i like don't fully agree and that i think you can like make something that's funny and then people like it you know what i mean like they they wouldn't be like or i mean i guess they studios do but when you make a film it can be good because it's good and like especially a comedy right like it, it almost feels like the question of like who's austin powers for or whatever like what back when when those like premise-based comedies were more common or like who is anchorman for it's not for people who really care about the news it's it's like you can just make the thing good enough that people will enjoy it hopefully right there's no rules and then like i'm uh i'm thinking too of the way that you guys are doing this like going in and pitching a book yeah seems more like hollywood like tv stuff yeah like is that i guess sometimes people do that you do submit like a um god i'm blanking on the proposal a proposal so that's what it was we weren't like live pitching oh so yeah so it was less of like a a hollywood pitch meeting and more like we sent around the proposal and like our agent kind of called the feedback for us um and it was but it was instructive i mean i i and that is a kind of uncharitable and defensive of me to say like just make the good thing and like it'll we just like trust us that we'll do a good enough job it's like a little egotistical uh, it is good to have had that, um, experience though, because I think like considering who you want to read a book is important, especially because like the marketing team of a book doesn't have the bandwidth of like, well, there's going to be ads during every football game. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's that you have to like find the audience a little bit more directly and you have to like go where they live a little better. So you can't just like cast as wide a net with, especially un- unless it's like the new, you know, one of the books like, uh, Don Wilson who writes the like kind of crime where he was a crime author, I believe. Uh, and his 
books, there's always like subway ads in New York. And it's like, unless you have that kind of budget, you have to like figure out who you're, you want to talk to and then find out where they live. Yeah. You know what it comes to mind as you are talking about all of this is I've had this thought before, I guess in the context of movies, but I suppose it would also apply to books. Like what if a studio or like some sort of independent movie entity or an independent press or a press within one of the bigs was just like, we're not going to bet on books. We're going to bet on authors or, and maybe, maybe this already exists, but like, I, like if I were running a movie studio, mm-hmm. I would just be like, get me, uh, the best directors yeah, and just let them do whatever they want. But like, they're going to live here and they're going to make interesting films. And I think the math will ultimately work out. Yeah. Over time. I wonder like, cause that's the way you want it to work, right? Is like you, you want like to put wings on people's creative vision as opposed to like coming in with a business plan for it, which I think kind of is how that's kind of the rumor of how I heard Creed got made. Um, after Ryan Coogler had done Fruitvale Station, that's what I heard was they were kind of just like, well, what do you want to do? Like, tell us your idea and we're here to, to like let your vision happen, which is cool. But I think like ultimately, I guess they're, they're investing so much money in it that like, it's such a, I understand the impulse to want security and safety when you're putting up the money. But at the same time, I do wish like you could get more, um, like outside the box, like, Hey, just like do a trust fall into my arms and make the project that you want. And I'm here to back it. And I do feel like, um, I, you know, I didn't come in to, to this book, super business minded, but like having that education and having written a book before and thought about like, well, who, who is it for? There is like a helpful creative, um, point to that too. And thinking like, well, who am I talking to? Like, how am I, how am I pitching my voice? How am I, what am I, what do I need to communicate? What can go unsaid and, uh, and unwritten and like, th- th- it just is understood. And so that is kind of, I-, I see it both ways, but like, as a, as a writer, I always just want to be like, don't worry about the premise, just make it good. Like anything can sound good or bad. You know, the premise of everything can sound good or bad. And it's just, it's all, it's 100% execution every time. Right. Like, um, you know, even the, even the Marvel movies that are huge, that there are ones that are good and ones that are bad or like comic book movies that are like, that are supposed to be so can't miss. And like, I guess maybe business wise are fair are bankable, but like, you know, the ones that work and the ones that don't. And there's no difference between, to me, there's no difference between being like the premise is Batman or the premise is Iron Man. It's like, okay, then make it, but make it good. That's the thing. Right. Right. And I also wonder like when it comes to the conversations that happen. And again, like, I think this happens more often in film and television than it does in books, but there is some of this in book world. Like how productive is that tension between say the business minded side of the industry versus the creative and like does it yield good outcomes i wish there was a way to quantify it i know and that because i uh my wife maris you mentioned before is like she is like she's like an incredible believer and an an incredible talent at at taste right she's a believer in taste and a and a and has an incredible like eye and brain for like this is good this should be in front of people Uh, which i think is like so much more human and valuable than like the Amazon. If you like this, you'll also like that. Um, like I, I think there's like a real, a real value in like a person being like, 
you know, there is like a heart and soul to this that can't be captured in like, well, you liked other books by this author or you like other books about this topic. Because again, it's so much about the, the execution and the specifics and like that what's poured into it rather than just like, this is a book about, uh, trouble in a beach town or whatever. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like get like big, big little lies could be great or terrible with exactly the same premise. And it's like nice to have a human voice kind of curating and being like, no, this is wonderful. This should be in front of you. Well, you talk about taste, like as a reader and as somebody like, like I always call it like betting on horses. Yeah. Like sometimes you can just sense like this, this is going somewhere or this author is destined for big things. Totally. You can just kind of feel it. Yep. And you can also, I think, get some sort of weird gestalt if you're online as much as I am. Yeah. From like your Twitter feed. I'm too online sometimes. Yeah. Like based on the chatter, like I can sometimes be like, oh, people are excited about this. Yeah. And I just kind of, I just kind of have this in- intuition about it based on, I think, these little micro bursts of info. The, the last book that I felt that about was like, oh, this is going to be something based on just like the people who are excited for it was, um, Kristen Arnett's book that came out this summer, mostly dead things, which is awesome. And, but like just the, the buzz around it, not like the industry buzz, but like the people buzz and like the artist buzz, you know, not like, and, and, and the other, the other stuff came after, right? Like she just did, I don't know if it was Amanpour. She just did like a, um, sit down PBS interview that came like maybe two months after the launch, a month after the launch. And it's like, because it resonated with people enough that it, she became newsworthy. It wasn't like, um, you know, she was a, uh, household name before. And so like, obviously she's going to go on fresh air or whatever, you know? Um, and I think that's so like, it's like so exciting to, to watch someone's work, um, be so resonant that it creates its own, it creates its own like shockwaves. Yeah. Well, I know it's like this kind of this melding between like, I feel like Twitter and the persona that, um, you see on Twitter and the wit and the, the fun. Like, I think a lot of people were just excited about that. And With Kristen. That, yeah. Yeah. As she's a starting, so as a starting point. Yeah. She's so good on, on Twitter. She's so funny. And like, so just like great. She's just like delightful online and her book. There's like such a, um, a, deep sadness to it that is like very different than her online persona, but like clearly shows the same persona, her online, like her writing that, that is, is online. Um, but it's so, it's clearly like the same, like brain behind it, but she just like focused in on the dramatic and the kind of absurd and, and the like tenderness rather than like, the depth that she gives to like how much she minds the like joke stuff she does. Yeah. It rules. It's such a good book and she's, she's great. Um, but that, that was the last thing that I remember. Like, and there were other, Oh, you know what? It was a few books this summer. Cause Taffy, Taffy, um, Bredeser Ackner wrote Fleischman is in trouble. Um, and that had a similar, like people reading it being like, Oh shit, this is going to be something real. And I feel it kind of bubbling around, um, Gia Tolentino's book that's coming out this week. Yep. Um, and it's so nice. It's like, uh, but that's partly because like, that's who I'm looking at, right? I'm looking at the people who online who got advanced copies of these books and, and prioritized reading them and were like galvanized by them. And, and, um, and then it happens the reverse. I didn't see quite as much like 
pre-chatter, but then like when Linda Holmes' uh, book "Every Drake Starts Over" came out this summer, it feel it felt like that hit, and people were just like, "What a joy! This is like we this is what we wanted," and it's so cool to see that like to see that just kind of like explode, and that's it, like uh, it's wonderful. It's it's odd too how like it's the same because I. S- like two or three of the books that you mentioned, same thing in my feed. Yep. Like we're all seeing the same things and maybe it's like there's this, uh, there's like a, it seems like there's usually a volume of work that precedes the release of a book that doesn't even necessarily have to be like other books. Mm-hmm. But I think of Taffy, like she writes these great profiles, incredible. like incredible, incredible pro- profiles that people get like genuinely excited about. And yeah. then it's like, oh, and she's got a book. Yep. And same with, same with Gia's writing for the New Yorker and like Linda's podcast is that there are people that like have an audience and people are already enthusiastic. And, and with um, Kristen, who'd written, I think had written other books before, but this one w- was like the, the release, it got felt larger. Um, but yeah, I think just like it carries over, which is nice. Like people like the other things that they're doing and are like, well, great. Like, like you were saying, it's like, Oh, I like this person's mind. And so I'm going to bet on them as like, I bet this book will also be good. Yeah. She's a ho- like a horse, not, not to be reductive, but like a horse to bet on. Like I'm putting right, my money for on, sure. I'm putting my money on our net. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it's, it's like, it's worth it. It's worth like investing mentally and emotionally and like keeping track of someone's career in the way that like you can do, you can do that with a film director. Right. I think people do it to various degrees with like, there are like Tarantino acolytes who are just like, he comes out with a movie. I don't care what it's about. I'm going to go see it. Um, and that's, I mean, I'm that way with like the Coen brothers for sure. Like whatever they're doing, like I'm in, uh, and, and I, I think that's great with authors too, because it lets you kind of hop with them from genre to genre, from project to project. And like, you know, Taffy going from someone who writes profiles and features to a novel, it's like not a one-to-one at all, but like that people came with her and that both things are great because she's an excellent writer um, is like a really exciting and special thing. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, so let's talk about you then in this this context, because you have done a lot of work that is beloved in television. Um, You are a comedian. Mm -hmm. You have a great Twitter presence. Thank you. You know, you have all these different pieces going um, and do you feel like when it has come to the launch of your book, 
that there has been reciprocity generated by that stuff. Like, you know, where people, um, give the book a chance or get excited and want to champion it because they've had good experiences with you in these other contexts. I think so. So it's, it's hard to tell, like, to what degree that will continue to unfold, but people have been really encouraging about it, not having read, you know, it, not having read the previous book that I worked on with Joe, I think people have made the leap of like, I like this guy's stand up or I like the TV shows he works on. And, and so I'm going to bet on this book. And cause you know, I mean, like it gets said over and over again, but not, it's not something that everybody knows that like pre-orders are super huge for authors. And so to like drum that kind of enthusiasm up in advance is really helpful. And it's helpful to have had a platform prior to the book to get to do that. You know what I mean? To like, um, have a little attention focused your way already. And I'm trying to like, to bring that into as like sharp and practical focus as I can to be like, please, if you like the work that I do, I, I would love for you to order this book in advance and just like trust before there are numerous reviews, if there are going to be numerous reviews and before you can like skim it in a, um, in a bookstore, trust that this will this will be something that will be worth your time and money and i think people hopefully have responded it feels people have been very kind about it the people that i know and it's it's really lovely yeah can you see pre-order numbers i mean i'm sure your publisher can i'm sure they can i have not looked i have not asked because i there's only so much that you can do and it's like if they're great it would be nice to know and if but anything less than like holy shit, this is a runaway bestseller months in advance is going to be a bummer because it's not the best it could possibly be. Right. So I'm trying to like stay away from that and really stay in the zone of like the people that I love and trust have said good things about it. I'm when I mention it online, I get good enthusiasm back. I have like, um, a fair amount of like press and interviews and stuff like this you were gracious enough to sit down with me and so like i'm trying to latch on to the things that i know and are good without like probing in the dark for like but is this also good <laughs> it's like i it's not like if it's it's not like if the numbers are low i can be like well i guess i just have to buy six thousand copies of this book right right now and it's you know you should sounds like a mentally healthy approach. You don't want to... I'm trying. You know, you don't want to obsess. Like, it's good to be... It's good to care. And yeah. it's good to pay some attention to yep. the business elements of For the sure. process. But, like, you can... That can easily become, like, a downward spiral. Yeah. And I had, a, I had a, a new stand-up album come out earlier this year. And I, like, intentionally didn't read press about it. And I... It's not because I'm... I'm, I'm very grateful for the, the press that it got. And I'm very grateful that people you know, wanted to write about it and enjoyed it and would talk about it. But it's like, I, I like hearing nice things, but I almost feel like if you liked it, you can, you can say it to my face. <laughs> and if you did, or, or like tweet it directly at me, Hey, I love this album. And, and I will be so grateful and it will make me feel very good. But like to seek out praise, that's the kind of threshold because I don't believe that if you like, um, cause people say like, well, if you let the good stuff in, you have to let the bad stuff in too. And I, don't agree fully with that. But I do think once you start seeking it out, if you don't find what you're looking for, that can be very painful. Do you get a lot of uh, trolls and stuff on your Twitter? Occasionally. And, and sometimes it like, sometimes it kind of like flusters me for the day or like, but usually I, I, um, will just, 
either respond or not and mute them and literally never think about them again. That's right. like, I, and I, as like, uh, you know, like a straight white cisgendered male don't get the fucking depths of what other people get. Um, but I think there's like a, that low hum of still like, uh, actually you're wrong. Or like, uh, you suck and I rule and whatever Trump rules and like <laughs> whoever, you know, whatever they want to put me in opposition against. And, and when it's just kind of that low grade, like that stuff, it's just like mute and never think about it again. And it's great. Like no, there's, there's no one who I've, who I've muted on Twitter or blocked on Twitter for that stuff. Whose name I can remember who's like icon. I can even picture because I fully don't value their opinions yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, you just, who has time to yeah. sit there and entertain? I, sometimes I will get people who won't, who argue. And if they're, if they are arguing a point and aren't being disrespectful, then sometimes I'll, I'll have a back and forth because like, I, I think that that's, that can be helpful to like re, to understand or try to articulate where I'm coming from. If I was making a joke and they kind of like didn't get the, the edges of the joke, but are responding to the content. And I think that's like, sure. If I have the time, why not? But it's like, if someone's just like, ah, you idiot, blah, blah. It's like, well, why would I give a shit? Like that's the, um, I, someone smarter than me said this, but it's like, if you're having a party and someone's acting like that, you throw them out of the party. You're not obligated every time, every time you speak with an earshot of a person, you're not obligated to endure whatever response there. They it, it, it evokes in them for whatever reason that, you know, whatever baggage they came in with. You're not like, it, it's not your obligation to like hear out everyone in the world that disagrees with you. And just because the internet makes your opinions more accessible to people that disagree with you, it doesn't make your obligation greater necessarily. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, uh, I think too, I mean, it's just, it's, it's no, like no great breaking news, but it's just an, absolute cesspool of like really vile behavior yeah. people feel at liberty to just be a lot more dickish yeah. than they otherwise would be someone recently was kind of being like a little sarcastic to me but i didn't think we disagreed that much but he just kind of came in hot because he didn't have the context for what i was saying or like didn't grasp it right away and i just said hey man I don't think we're that far off in this. Why are you being so pervasively sarcastic in your response? He like responded to me twice and I was like, what, what is this? And then like, he would have been away and a couple hours later was like, Oh shoot. I think I misunderstood you the first time. Uh, sorry about that. And it's like, you can like, that's fine. Yeah. Right. I don't, I don't mind that. Or like, I've even disagreed with people about things and like gotten to either an understanding or occasionally persuaded something, someone of something. But like, I think when you're coming in, just like, gross and abusive there's no need to take it but on this by the same token i feel like this is a fine thing for us to discuss to discuss but like when it gets into like brett stevens writing for the times of like when people are mean to me on twitter it just it it proves that i'm right and they're wrong and it's like no it doesn't you're you're writing for the times and this is the voice that other people have to say that they disagree with you so like i do think that there is a great you can learn from it like and i've said things that i've later been like oh i was wrong about that and people told me i was wrong and there's a great benefit to it but like when people are being you know abusive and malicious there's like not a a lot you can that i care to take from it but but at the same time it's like it's not um 
well, I, I'm a conservative and people say that I'm racist and it makes me more conservative. And it's like, no, you're justifying the thing you are already doing because you and you're just like digging in your heels and you're not taking in criticism, you know? So what about uh, in your work as a standup? And, and just so people uh, can be oriented, you work as a standup comic. Yes. You just released an album. What's the name of the album? Dancing on a Weeknight. Okay. And then you write for television. Mm-hmm. What, what shows? I currently write for Jesus and Marrow on Showtime. And before that... I was at Last Week Tonight with John Oliver writing the, uh, for the show for four years. And then before that, I did the digital social web stuff for them for a year. So there for five years in okay. total. Yeah. Okay. So as a comedian, like just to stay on Twitter for one more second. Sure. Because um, you use it a lot. Yeah. Uh, does doing crowd work or dealing with like, you know, the trolls in person in a comedy club give you any kind of edge? Because like I, I am... Uh, in awe of people who can really master a crowd like that. Sure. They have a heckler and they can just like own the room, diffuse it, put the person down. I think it's a slightly different skill, but I think it, it requires some of the same tools, but I, it's, it's a little different in that, like you don't have as much at your disposal in a room. I think people are meaner online, but it's easier to quiet them. You know, you could, cause like if worst comes to worst, when it's one person and not like a wave of targeted harassment that is brought on someone, you can just like block them and, and then they're blocked generally. Um, and, and obviously it gets worse than that, but like that's a, the closest analog to a heckler. But with a heckler, part of the, part of what you're doing is like, you want to redirect that person or, or quiet them, but you can't upset the group dynamic of the room. And so, for me with my the the kind of energy and 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 like voice that i have on stage i can't like if someone's like shouting out or being annoying which it's like not that common and and especially not that common that someone would say something like genuinely like hey you suck like that just doesn't come up that much but usually like someone will respond to your joke audibly and and you just like need it to stop because it destroys the flow of the show. But I can't just be like, shut your fucking mouth, asshole. You know, because it's like it breaks the rhythm of of the performance, and, uh, and especially especially because that's not how I sound. Otherwise, you know, like when I'm just talking and, and delivering my material, it doesn't come off like that. That's so, also not your like you're a nice guy. I'm I'm pretty nice. I try to be. Yeah. And so like I don't. Even if I want to say that to someone, it, it like curdles the room in a way that I think someone who has like a more aggressive persona on stage can get away with a little more. You who, know, who are, who's like, who are some comedians who are really good at crowd work? There's oh some gosh, pe- Jimmy Pardo in LA is amazing. Um, What's the, the guy that did like an entire tour of just crowd Todd work? Barry. Todd Barry. He's yeah. great. Oh, yeah. he's so good. And I love it. And it doesn't have to be, you know, you can solicit the, the audience responses and that's a, that's different and, and like better than dealing with hecklers to kind of like go into the, you know, ask questions of the crowd, talk to people. And I think that's such a beautiful, um, dexterous art to get to watch, like watching Todd, watching Jimmy. I'm sure there's people I'm missing too, but like they're, they, just like draw things out of the audience and, and like turn them into enjoyable comedy for the whole room on the spot. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, that is a skill I don't have at all. I, uh, and I can only imagine like, especially cause it's so, it's so unpredictable. It's so, you have to be so good at improv yeah. 
And it feels like such a slippery slope because if you lose, it can, you can lose the room like that. Sure. And if you lose the room and you're up there on stage, yeah. it's got to be a very lonely experience. If you're doing it though, if you're doing it at the level where you're like, I'm doing an hour of crowd work, like it's pretty good. Like you're probably pretty good. Or when I do, if I do any crowd work, it's like to bolster material or because something happened unexpectedly in the room and I want to talk about it. You know, someone has an interest reacted to a joke in an interesting way and I want to draw that out or like someone um, just has like a, an interesting vibe or like I'm in a city and I'm curious about something and I want to ask about it. Uh, so I usually do it pretty like goal oriented and for short bursts at a time and like like uh, merge back into material. But like it's it's really cool to watch someone just go out on the limb like that and go, yeah, this is my hour is I'm just going to talk to people <laughs> in the crowd and like respond. There's... Um, Jim Colladin, who's like a, uh, opens for Brian Regan a lot, but I know him from New England is like really great at that too. And just like kind of going around the room and, and drawing everything together. And I mean, like it's different, it's different than crowd work, but like watching Jesus and Marrow improvise together on set or listening to their podcast is like really joyful in that way too. It's like, they're just creating, they're taking like the kernel of an observation that happens in the moment and like like frothing up something really exciting. Well, you write about a, a, you know, a set that you did in Boston. I think you were opening for John. Yeah, Oliver. Yeah. 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 You did a little of this. You went out, I did, and, you yeah. went out and jabbed the crowd. That was fun. I, but that was like so managed. Right. So I, I opened for Oliver at the Wilbur theater in, in the theater district in Boston. And it's like somewhere between 11 and 1300 seats, I think. And it was new year's Eve and the crowd was just super juiced, super packed. John's fans are really wonderful. The people that go see him live. Um, and I think it was the fourth of four shows we'd been, we were doing together uh, and I was just opening for him and I was, I'd asked to do it because my family is from the Boston area and I was going to be home for the holidays and thought it would just be like a real fun end to the year. So, I had one drink before the last show, which is 10 o'clock on New Year's Eve. And I came out and I said, um, you know, it's very, which is true. I said, it's very meaningful to be here. I grew up eight miles away from here. I like, I've seen shows here. I love it. I started comedy two blocks from here. This is really special to me to be here. And I'm, I'm so glad to share this night with you. And people, there's like kind of a quiet, warm applause. And I said, that said, I did move to New York City three years ago because I wanted to be happy and successful. And, <laughs> and they turned fully against me, which I knew would happen, openly booing, which is like not at all common. Like I've only seen someone get like, like boo, like maybe five times ever. Uh, and was it playful booing or was it, it was, it, it was, and it wasn't like, I don't think it wasn't final booing. It wasn't like get off the stage boo, but it was like, we don't like what you said, boo. It's interesting that there's a spectrum to booing. Oh yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, the, it, you, and you can tell the kind of heat behind it, right? Like, uh, so I, but I knew I, but they were playing, that was the response I was trying to elicit, right? Was like their displeasure. And I said, after that happened, I said, you know, you can't, you're not allowed to boo. You can't boo me for leaving. Like you guys could all go if you wanted. Goodwill hunting isn't science fiction. And <laughs> that got more booze. And then I started doing jokes and like, they were a good crowd. Like they're like a well, um, well-behaved crowd, I guess, in that, like, they didn't just tune out and start talking. Like, they were there to see John. They had, like, some trust that that I was 
there for a reason. Right. And so I started doing material and got like an applause break off a joke, you know, like uh, next. And I said, no, I don't want your applause because you've decided you didn't like me and I, you have to stick to it. You already, <laughs> you picked a side and it was so fun. And, and, and there is like, you, you're on stage enough. You can kind of like anticipate and orchestrate responses to things like a lot of you know, a joke that is where you get something wrong on purpose to kind of like get the put to like unsettle the audience a little bit and like have them kind of be like, what is that? And, and you know, you can feel you can feel it. And, and it's like a really fun part of the medium is to get to like um, to it, it's that's why it, it, the live performance element is so fun is that like you're in the room feeling this energy uh, and, and not in any mystical way. But like if the audience is confused, you know, or if the audience is like delighted you know or if they disagree if you say something they disagree with you can feel them pull away and then to like reel it back in is like a very fun thing Triumph. to do it's yeah it's such a good feeling it's really fun <laughs> and some people are like real experts at it and, and and can build you know an hour around like i'm going to around this push and pull and i think it's not generally how i operate but it is like a really fun trick not trick it's like a really fun skill to watch i don't mean to trivialize by saying you know it's like a parlor trick it's like a, it's a juggling uh which is also an incredible skill when you do it well yeah right <laughs> i have a, and a friend who's a juggler or you're just like oh yeah like i i can't do that and like your being able to do that is worth people paying to come see you do it. Well, and I imagine too, like if you're doing that push pull act and you're really good and skilled at it, that it would help you to cement a very deep level of trust with audiences mm -hmm. because they're like, Oh, so this is the game. Yeah. And like, I know this, this guy or this, or this woman's going to yeah. bring, they're going to bring me back. Yep. And you can, I think when audiences expect that from you, it's like fun to find I can I imagine it would be fun to find different ways to to push away and different ways to bring people back, you know, because like it kind of gets it could kind of get stale if you just say something disagreeable. But like if you're just like this thing that you like, I hate like you, you know, that's like the entry level version of it. And then if 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 you say something like if you can write a bit that's good enough to be like. I don't enjoy Beyonce and cause people will revolt. <laughs> there will be it will, uh, in the, in the streets, people, uh, picketing you. No, I said, I said on Twitter, like once I was like, I think Solange is more compelling than Beyonce. Wow. And people were just like, Oh really? Like I got some real, I got like, yeah, I got frozen out a little yeah. bit. Yeah. But if you can write a bit, that's good enough to like bring an audience around that, then that's like, a pretty exciting and compelling piece of um, performance. But like, you can't just keep doing that, right? Like you can't just be like, uh, I also don't like pizza. You know, it's like, <laughs> ugh, yeah. you get exhausted. But like, if you can, um, there, there's some really like, it's just so fun to watch someone um, put out something that's like, an ugly thing about themselves and then bring an audience around to like, like, all right, I see you. Yeah. Right. It's so fun. But uh, I, again, that is like not remotely my skill set on stage. I think mine, it's almost, I, I mean like the closest thing I have, it's almost like trying to drag people along behind the wake of my enthusiasms rather than saying something that they're like, repulsed by to say something that they're just like 
no way. And then like bring them around. Like I have a joke about, um, I love having in-laws. That's a, it's, I have it's on my album. I did on Gordon earlier this year and it's like a fun way to get that friction with the audience because people audibly are like, huh? And, and you can, you get a lot out of that, out of like putting something out that is, um, not controversial for controversial sake, but like, here's my thesis and, and I'm going to defend it. And when you can bring people on board of like, even if they're not mad at you, if they're like confused, like, wait, why, how, how do you feel that? And then you comedically back up that thesis. It's just like such a fun, uh, and, and it keeps, it keeps people engaged rather than, um, you know, like, cause, cause they have a stake in it. Well, yeah. And you play with their expectations yeah. a little bit. You subvert those expectations. Yeah. So I want to ask you about like your trajectory as an artist, because I get some people in here. I've had like a surprising number of authors in here who have played in bands. Oh, cool. Like that happens. Yeah. It was like, oh, I was in a band and then, you know, now I'm writing novels mm-hmm. or whatever. And then I'm trying to rack my brain. I think I've probably had a, one or two or three people who have been up on stage as comedians. My brain is so bad, but it's unique is my point. Oh, interesting. And so in terms of the sequence, like you are from Massachusetts, mm-hmm. you wanted to be a comedian first. So it's all kind of mushed together. I think when I was a little kid, I thought it would be cool to be a comedian. And then I went to college thinking I was going to be maybe a playwright, which is like, I didn't realize at the time, but like numerically, probably much rarer than being a stand-up, a working stand-up comedian, right? Because, like, every a Christmas party in every city, there will be a comedian at, some, at one of those. It's like they're not commissioning plays for every, <laughs> for every like, holiday party or, like, hot youth hockey fundraiser or whatever. Um, and so I went into college thinking I was going to write that, and I pivoted pretty quickly to being a fiction major. But also, at the same time, I, between freshman and sophomore year, I started doing stand up. Where'd you go to college? Brandeis, okay. just outside Boston, um, in Waltham, Massachusetts. So, but when I graduated, I was doing stand up at a low grade professional level. I was getting paid to perform most weekends, but you know, I'd be making 50 to $300 or maybe less. Um, per set or like per, you know, per weekend. Yeah. So I would, you know, I would do three shows for a hundred dollars each at a club or something, or I would do one show for $25. And, and so it wasn't, I wasn't doing it at the level where it was like a, it was like a a part-time job. And I still thought like when I graduated, I was like, okay, I'm going to be a a writer. I'm going to write, um, maybe short stories. That's what my thesis was. I wrote a book of short stories as a, um, as a fiction thesis at Brandeis and as an undergraduate, as an undergraduate. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It was cool. I was a creative writing in English double major and a Spanish minor. Um, what was this? Mrs. Walensky? Walensky. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. The Spanish from, teacher. From my Spanish teacher from high school. <laughs> That's like a, you triumphed over her with the Spanish minor. <laughs> I felt good. I, I knew that I would, I don't, she wasn't going to like scare me off it. And, uh, but yeah, she was my, my high school nemesis was this, this Spanish teacher who just like didn't like me. Uh, which I can't stand. Um, I, uh, I am like a people, ple- an extreme people pleaser. And the fact that she, I just like rubbed her the wrong way destroyed me. I have some of that too. Yeah. I don't like it when somebody doesn't like me and I will like be like, I'm going to try to find a way to win you to my side. Yeah. It's so, I, I 
at, on some level, I think it is healthy to want to build bridges. But on another level, I get so envious when I see someone that's like, fuck me, fuck you. Yeah, right. And you're like, oh, what a clarity you must move through the world with. <laughs> right, right. Instead of this fog that I live yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of like, is it me? And like, which I think, again, a healthy impulse to be like, okay, let's take the temperature of this room. Did I do something messed up? Is there a way I could treat this person better or more in line with how they like to be treated? Um, I, I think that's reasonable, but to, I think as a young person, especially I took it to like an extent of like, well, they have to like me because if not, uh, this all just crumbles. <laughs> right. So I, I left thinking maybe I was going to write and I just like, didn't really write much for a few years. I was writing for the stage and I was teaching preschool and I was tutoring, but I didn't like sit down. Wait, writing for the stage? Like for stand up. Oh, like right. I would write, oh, okay. for, I would write for my act, uh-huh. but I wouldn't, but I would all the time that I had for writing would go into jokes. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time writing stories or scripts or essays or short humor pieces. And, and so those were kind of like, those years, they weren't lost years creatively, but they were like, oh, I wasn't pushing my career forward. I was, I was getting good at standup, which helped, but like, it's so, um, of all the people that work in comedy, the percentage I think that are just standups and make like a comfortable, healthy, sustainable living from standup. It's, it's just like a slice, right? It's like There's, the novelists. Yeah. You know, yes, do it. Right. Same thing. It's like, right. It's amazing. And so it's like, it, it's like saying, well, I don't want to teach. I don't want to copyright. I don't want to, um, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is, other writers, I don't want to, um, submit essays and short stories to publications to, but when I'm between novels, like I am a novelist and I write novels and, and like, I know people who are novelists and it's like, it takes so much talent and perseverance and sometimes just like hoping that the great book that you write finds an audience instead of being a great book that you, that gets sold and then sits on the shelves and then sits on the used book, you know, goes to the strand and, um, and is sold for like $6 if anyone buys it, you know, like there, there is like a level of luck involved in like things catching on in that way no and, doubt. Ha- and having that kind of zeitgeist, even, even if there's not luck in like writing a good book. Um, and, and, and so I, but I, so I was just writing for stand up, which was like, I'm not, um, this was, you know, I was in my early to mid twenties then. And, and when my, did you first go on stage as a comedian? Um, the, for real, for real. Like I'd done a couple little things when I was like in high school, just like at, like my friend booked this local church and threw like an event there or whatever. And, uh, but for real, I count, um, the first time I like went on stage at a comedy club and performed stand up comedy was between my freshman and sophomore year in college. And you don't strike me like in person or in your book as the kind of typical, like, deep childhood wound comedian no like you had a good like family mm-hmm. upbringing like yeah. healthy like parents are great yeah love, they, my like, parents are awesome sisters they remain great. Awesome. my sister's the best yeah, yeah. You, so you're like a happy healthy i try individual by you know generally speaking i don't and i don't mean to be too um you know it's a little trite that whole that whole thing about like the wounded artist comedian actor or whatever sure but it, there is some truth to it and i think you i think you that. can create really wonderful 
art from pain and trauma. And, um, I, I think that that is can certainly feel like really beautiful, moving or hilarious work. But I also think like when people list it as a prerequisite for making any art worth, uh, enjoying or absorbing i think that that's a little misguided when people talk like that like oh you could you can't be funny or you can't be have a depth of understanding because you're not deeply damaged damaged is such like a judgy word but you because there is not a a an injury or an illness or a, a wound in your past that like is the wellspring of creativity i just don't like i don't buy into that um do you ever have that thing like you would like look at a memoir? I mean, this is like a really, uh, like it's somewhat jokey, but there's a, like a grain of truth to it where I do sometimes feel like, wow, I wish something would happen. Like something for mean- sure. So then I would have this book to write and yeah. maybe that's just like, you know, um, mourning my own, like, like dry well of creativity sure. or whatever. I, I think, sorry, I'm like creaking in the chair. That's all right. I think that that is, um, I, I have had that feeling at various points of like, I wish something would happen. And, but like, I don't think that I, I'm also okay with making work and, and we'll say art that like people are comforted by and is like soothing and resonant in that way that it's like, oh, this was like a real, um, this was a, a pleasure. It didn't like, I don't think my stand up people or, or even my book, people will read it or watch it and go like, this shook me to my goddamn core. Right. <laughs> Which like, that's the, but that's not my goal. And I don't think I don't necessarily have that book in me, certainly not as like memoir or, or, um, nonfiction, but I, I think there's, there can be great value in work that is like, that resonates in different ways. I think so. And I think I gotta be honest, like I got enough heaviness in my own life Sure. And you become an adult, you live long enough, you go through enough stuff, even if it's not of like the cinematically awful variety, Yeah, you get to a point where it's like, I don't know if I can deal with a book where it's like, oh my, like, I know Sophie's Choice is like a, a masterpiece, but I don't know if I can read it before bed. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to put it right. out there. It's like, when are you reading it that you have the emotion? When are you reading something that you all have the emotional fortitude to, to take it on? And sometimes it's, it's so worth it right like it and if you can muster it like um my my wife has a, a much greater um like fortitude for that kind of thing like reading a book that is really emotionally affecting and like and absorbing that experience and and letting that kind of like inform and and nourish her and for me i just like i sometimes want just to be like uh, I want to be entertained and not in a way that's necessarily ignorant of the world, but I, I like when something both like reflects the world and brings like, uh, like either reflects or adds joy to it as opposed to like the, um, like a punishing emotional depth, which is deeply valuable and so commendable, but it's just like not the entertainment that I crave often. Well, and you got to be true to yourself too, not only as a consumer of art, but sure. as a, as a creative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I want to kind of track your progression creatively and professionally Sure. and we'll get to the book, but I feel like there is an interesting story to be told about, uh, you being in Boston, uh, doing stage work, 
teaching preschool mm -hmm. and then deciding to move to New York. Yeah. And like, what was the, was there a plan? Like, give, give us an idea of like what you were thinking when you came to New York. So I was, I w was dating someone. I'd started dating someone who lived in New York and I, my stand up career had kind of grown to a place where I didn't think, I think it would, I thought it would have taken me a long time to get further than where I was in Boston. Like I could keep writing more jokes. I could keep improving on stage for sure. I wasn't like at a, some kind of creative Zenith, but there also just weren't that many more opportunities than I was enjoying at the time for, for someone at my approximate skill level and level of like local renown. Um, so I thought that it was a great confluence of circumstances where my girlfriend was in New York at the time. And I was, I was like, you know, I could make this kind of professional leap was the thought. So I left my preschool job and I moved to New York with the, the plan being, I have to go see about a girl. I have to go see about a girl, <laughs> but it's like, I also have to go see about a job. Right. Like it was like all the things were in line. It wasn't like I was, I was pursuing my romantic life at the expense of my creative or professional life. I was like, this person is here and I like spending time with her and there are all these professional opportunities. So if either one of those or both of those don't work out, I, I can always come home. Like that's what the, cause there was like an ego thing at first about, Oh, if it doesn't work out, whatever that means in New York and I come back to Boston, then I'll feel like a failure. But then it, it kind of took me wrestling that to the ground and saying, no, it's not that I will have failed. It's that I will have decided it is not for me. Like it's there's, it doesn't mean that I failed at New York to go, Oh, the thing, what it would take to thrive here is more than I can bear. Or the quality of life here is not what I want. Um, and that's no one's failure. And if people, that's no failure. And if people think it is, if people are like, you failed at this, then that is, that is their projection onto me. Um, like it wouldn't have felt good to go, oh, I, I couldn't accomplish these dreams, but I think there's like a great value as well in going, oh, I, this is the level that I'm working at and I'm going to enjoy and appreciate the fruits of that labor rather than like pine after some career that, uh, that could have been. So what did you, you get to New York, you're, there's a girlfriend. Mm -hmm. You start to go to the clubs around town and yeah. try to get time. Like, how does that work? Do you so, just show up and say hi? It's There was kind of an idea that that's what you do, which I've never found super fruitful. But it was like, I would go to open mics. I had plenty of friends in New York already. People had moved from Boston. People had moved from other cities. People who I knew from previous visits or their visits to Boston. So I felt pretty enmeshed in the community pretty quickly, which is very fortunate. But... um so I was doing open mics and then friends or people that saw me at open mics or people that I could email would book me on mostly like independent shows, bars, alternative venues, very little at the clubs for a while. I did a couple, I bombed my ass off at Caroline's really early on opening for my friend, Mike Kaplan, who's amazing. And, uh, you know, I just like, wasn't, um, what is it like to bomb? It's oh, it's be, horrible. It's yeah. <laughs> I'm much better at it now at bombing. What do you, what, how do you get like, well, give me an example of how you get good at it. Like, but basically the crowd isn't clapping or sure. they're, they're not engaged. Yep. Jokes are dying. 
um, you might start to get self-referential on stage, I would yeah, imagine. Yeah, so I think it's – a little less self-reference is very helpful because sometimes people are enjoying quietly. Sometimes it's just not a room – like sometimes you're just in a room that is not well-situated for – comedy like it's just sometimes you're in a place where it's just not going to go well for anyone you know and it, and it doesn't make sense to like self-flagellate or to lash out when instead you can just kind of like perform to the best of your ability and then it's like um well and a good evening to you all you know like you'll perform for seven people in in a bar and they all came in separately and didn't really know there was going to be a show and you're bombing but it's not like it's a different level of frustration than when you're in a room of 300 paid customers eating it. So like, I think calibrating your expectations is really helpful and helps you like be more in your own skin as opposed to being like, but these jokes worked so great last night. Yeah. Like, why don't you like them? Like switching gears a little more to like, you know, adjusting your energy level and just being, being the comedian that the room needs a little more is um is something that I've gotten better even if it doesn't make it go great there's I think there's a valor in like doing your best and not like melting down on stage and taking it less personally once you get off I think that's really helpful too to not be like well this went this didn't go great I wasn't carried off on the audience's shoulders so I'm a piece of trash I think that like getting good at bombing is just like this will happen and like maybe I was trying new stuff that didn't go well but that is an important data point in the evolution of this hour that I'm working on or whatever. So obviously the goal is for that not to happen that often, but if you're not leaving any room for the possibility that can go badly, you're not, um, you're probably not trying new things. You're probably not, uh, like, um, exiting your comfort zone very much and that's fine. But it's like, I, I like to do th That's part of the endeavor for me. I don't think you can ever do great work in any creative field. If you're not willing to risk a little bit, just so it doesn't have to be right. Again, you don't have to be tearing yourself open every night and, and, uh, and doing uh, like laying yourself bare in a risky way for audiences in front of audiences. But the, I think it is the, the more you're willing to risk, maybe the greater the reward. And yeah, I think so. Risk in terms of like, because even if you're not writing deep, intimate details about your own life, I think there's a, are, there's also a, and I don't mean to speak for anyone or to even, I, I hope this doesn't sound like a dig at all. Jim Gaffigan is one of my favorite comedians. I think he's incredible, but there is like a risk to going on stage and being like, I'm going to talk about traffic cones for seven minutes. <laughs> and like, you know, when he's working out new stuff, he'll do stuff like that. He'll go, he'll come up and just be like, here are all my jokes about X, Y, Z and just go through them and see what works and what doesn't. Whereas if he only did the one that he was like, I know this one will work. You don't get that rounded bit. That's like, there's ebb and flow and there's dynamism in there. You kind of just get the, like the Ramon song version of that act right right you know and it's funny because i think from uh like a documentary film perspective and just maybe the world like the social media the world that we live in like a lot of the veils have been lifted in terms of how the sausage is made yeah. in hollywood and elsewhere and like watching how 
like the very best comedians like you see chris rock go on stage to work work out new material and just fucking bomb yeah and that's the that's the way that it goes that's yes. how you do it you know? yeah and it's it's great that 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 to know that especially as an artist like as an audience member maybe you like seeing behind the curtain maybe you just want to see the hour when it's done but like as a as a creative person it's so comforting to know that Chris Rock doesn't step on stage night one of working out this new hour, kill end to end, tour it and just get it even better and then um, record it. You know, it's so like soothing to know that that's part of the process forever. For Whereas everyone. It, it could feel um, painful to go, I'm opening myself up to this all the time. Every time I try something new, there's the risk it will fail. But like knowing that that's part of it, I think is comforting, yeah. right? How do you like, uh, you say you've gotten better at it. Y you know, the, uh, like the emotional strength that you got to have, like the sort of knowledge of self sense of perseverance. Like that's just something you've been able to work out. Like you have to go to like therapy. <laughs> I yeah. should probably, I think that would enrich my life. I have not, I'm not like a, a regular therapy goer. Me neither. Um, I need it though. I think I, I think I don't know what's keeping me from it. I think there's like, I have a sense of like, well, things are good, but like, that doesn't mean they couldn't be better. A and I'm like, uh, I sometimes feel like I need to, invest more in like making things better rather than being okay when they're good. But like the things that keep me emotionally level are like with things going badly on stage or like in show business at large are like, it's really helped to have a, a human being life that I love to go back to when I'm not doing professional things. And I love to it, not even go back to you. That's the baseline of my life is like, I wake up in bed with my wife and our fat little dog and like it's the best and i'm and that's that's so helpful and it doesn't have to be like i mean i feel like my life is in a wonderful place but it doesn't have to be all good for it to be a refuge from the professional stuff or like a um the the dominant mode other than the professional stuff like needing everything to go well professionally is a really hard place to be in because like audiences aren't there for your well-being and like networks aren't there for your well-being i think it's mark Marin who has the saying of like show business isn't your dad yeah and it's like yeah. that's it's really true it's like they're not it's they don't exist like the the professional structures that you work within don't exist um in conversation with you you're just like working amongst them whereas like my you know my wife doesn't exist for my well-being but like we are for each other and, and so like when when something goes bad on stage badly on stage the audience doesn't um they they have no vested interest in like how i feel about it or think about it but i can go back to i have places i can go back to where like it is good i have like a very happy loving home life and like that's it you know if um if i bombed every night for a year i still get to like have brunch with my wife and uh watch movies with her and travel and like that's Obviously, if I bombed every night for a year, I would rethink numerous things. But like, <laughs> it is it is so good to not need every set to go well because that's like where I find happiness. You got some balance. Yeah, the balance is really important, and I, I see that. But 
at the same time, not to be a devil's advocate about it, I was out of balance for years, partly because balance wasn't possible. Like when I was trying to get to where I am now, I think I was a worse romantic partner to people I've dated in the past. And I like, I don't feel good about that. I'm not like, you have to, it's for my art. Like, but I just wasn't in a place. It, It was like anybody who works long hours to get to a place where they can work shorter hours. Um, I, I, and I, I feel bad that people with their own lives and subjectivity were like, didn't, I didn't give them the best of me always, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, you live and learn. Yeah. Um, if it was easy to find that equilibrium, we would all be doing it. You know, you're going to have to take some knocks and make some mistakes to get there. Totally. And, and, and like, I don't even consider some of it a mistake in terms of like, I'm glad that I put in the work that I put in, but I also wish that I, I, I wish I'd like considered more how that affected other people. And like, maybe there were times where I like, wasn't in a place to be in a relationship, but like you can, you know, you can do well enough that like you're maintaining, but you're not like growing a relationship. Right. And right. and I think I was, I've, I had been there a couple of times, like in my twenties where it was like, Oh, I like this person. We like spending time together. But like there, if it came to like, um, having to skip something of theirs to like, try to advance my career, like, I probably would have gone the career way, which is like not a good place to be. Whereas now I think I I'm less hungry for career success and like way more willing to go, you know, this would be fun, but it's your, I promised that we would have dinner with your parents and honoring that is like, what's important to my life. Right. Well, what about getting to John Oliver going from working stand up? Um, making your way in New York to getting a great, that's a plum writing job awesome. for yeah. anybody who works in so comedy. Great. I, um, was so, it was so fortunate to have that happen. I went from, so I was doing stand up. I was writing little humor pieces, magazine articles and tutoring. When I moved to New York, I stopped teaching full time, but I still had this tutoring hustle that, um, that was like the job that paid a lot of the bills. Um, these are like with the kids of people on the Upper East side or something. Yeah. A lot yeah. of that stuff. Yeah. Um, a lot of, uh, uh, the sixties through the nineties. Yeah. I don't know that I like ever left Manhattan with this, but that's just partly cause that's where the tutoring agency was. Um, but yeah, I would go do house calls and stuff and it was, that, that was the zone. I had a couple people in the low hundreds and, uh, but it was great. It, it was, it was like a very, I liked the work and it was, it paid well enough that I didn't have to work 40 hours to like pay my, rent with three roommates and whatever. Right. Right. Um, so I was doing that. I had a, a kind of big viral parody Twitter account, which sounds so silly to say, but my friend Jack Moore and I co-founded the modern Seinfeld Twitter account. Right. And that, um, got both of us a bunch of opportunities to start doing new things. So like the, after that kind of popped open how many followers it like peaked at like eight hundred thousand. jesus christ truly bonkers and so after that kind of exploded it was like a hundred thousand dollars a hundred thousand dollars it was not that it was a hundred thousand followers within several days like within three or four days and that kind of got us the attention to like i was able to start applying to late night shows mostly that's what i was doing because i didn't have 
a great script to shop around. Like I just, did you have an agent? I didn't. And I had a manager that I was kind of, that I was working with. She, a friend of mine became a manager. And so she was helping me out with certain things. But when this parody Twitter account happened, it like was enough to push her boss to be like, we have to sign this guy with Uh this agency or this management company. So, and that, that helped a lot. Um, and so I applied to like 20 jobs in a year, like, which is like almost all of them had unique writing requirements. So these jobs listed on like indeed.com. No. So a lot of them came through, most of them came through my manager. Some of them came through like a friend being like, Hey, this place that I work is hiring. But because of the level I was working at, I didn't have that many friends that had writing jobs yet. Like there were people that I would see around and talk to, but they weren't like necessarily close enough with me or like I hadn't put myself on their radar enough with my work that they would be like, Oh, we got to get this guy to submit. So sometimes it would be that. And then other times my manager would just be like, um, daily shows looking for someone write this submission, write these submission requirements or Fallon is looking for monologue people do, do this. And so I did like probably 19 or 20 of those in a year. One of them turned into a very small amount of work for Billy on the street, which was really fun. And like in, that was in like July or August of this year, basically straight of just submitting and which was like enough to buoy me to the end of the year of like, cool, maybe this is possible. Maybe my dreams are not in vain and that I'm like on the right track. And this viral Twitter moment wasn't like the only, the, the high watermark of my career. <laughs> right. And so even though I'm so grateful for like what it helped me accomplish later. Um, so I applied as a writer for last week tonight in December did a second submission that they went out to like a smaller group in January. And then in February was hired to do their like digital social stuff, um, which is really cool. It was cool to be on the ground floor of a new show, watching it come together, being a part of the team, even though I wasn't writing for the show. And then after the first season, they had the budget and the, whatever the need, I guess for another writer. And they moved me to write for as a staff writer. Wow. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. It was really exciting. It was, um, it was such a thrill. And he seems like such a nice guy. Yeah. He rules. He's great. He's like, he's like, like, what you see is what you get. Yeah. It's not like really off, smart. Like off stage. He's like a, a monster. No, not at all. <laughs> no, 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 no. He's, um, he's really wonderful. He, uh, he's so smart. So funny. Works so hard. Like really sets the tone of like, okay, we show up and we do the work and we, we get it as good as we can. Um, that's like, that's what we do. We, we work on it until it's the way we want it, which is like a very aspirational style of, of work, you know, to like, not just go like, man, eh, good enough. Yeah. Um, and, he, I, and he's warm with fans. Like, I mean, like I, being famous seems like a hard gig to me. He's really, I haven't seen him with fans that much, but like when someone would like bring their parent to a taping or, or, you know, a partner to a taping and they ran into him in the hall or popped their head in to say hello. He was always like so pleasant and generous in terms of just saying like being like really kind and appreciative of the person coming to see the show and like always saying something nice about the person that works for him. And just like, he has like a very, um, a very kind touch in those situations. And I think he understands what, people want from those interactions and like knows how much he can give and still without being like, and we're all going partying. You know what I mean? Like like, that's, that's an unnecessary amount of 
access, I think. Well, and as you say, we deplete anybody, I think. Unless I you're, think so, unless you're like an extreme extrovert. Right. Um, well, and the reason I ask is that I'm a... Uh, because he, you know, he's a Daily Show guy. That's where he came up. Yeah. And I happened to see Jon Stewart. My wife uh, works on the ESPY Awards. Oh, cool. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but she's done that, you know, gig every summer for many years. And I I go just because I That's can. fun. Yeah, it's fun. I'm a sports fan. And uh, congratulations on your pats, by the way. Oh, what thank a, you. What an embarrassment of riches you're it's, living through. Yeah. Tom Brady locked up till he's, I think they signed him until he's 76. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, until his social security benefits kick in, he's yeah. going to play quarterback for the Patriots. But uh, anyway, like just short anecdote, like I saw um, John Stewart at the show because he was there to give like a courage award to like a vet because mm-hmm. you know, he, he has these causes that he believes in. yeah he's like really the, the 9-11 first responders I, I mean amazing to watch his advocacy i'm like i'm a huge fan yeah and i'm not the person who will ever go up to anybody sure i just don't do that i yep. don't do selfies i don't do no. any, I, autographs seem idiotic to me yeah but unless you're a kid yeah i think that's sweet that's sweet for a kid or like and, and a selfie i understand the desire for a selfie i'm so self-conscious about that kind of stuff uh i fucked it up with megan rapino no because i was like this is the one where i was like because they had just won and yep. she was right there and i was like and i yep. just then she just kind of like walked past me and yep. i was like don't ever fucking ask oh it's, it's so stupid it's so vulnerable to <laughs> ask for I, I, as like a comedy person, I feel like unless it's somebody that I like, if it's somebody that I like work with for on something, maybe I would ask for, you know, if I like opened for someone and we had a good rapport, maybe I'd be like, can we ask for, or I would just hope somebody else took one with the two of us and steal or like, you know, ask for the permission to repost it myself. Um, I, you know, but this Jon Stewart thing just, and I, Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, it's all right. I have, cause I have like a semi point. But uh, the experience that I had was making eye contact with him as I was like walking my daughter yeah. to the bathroom or whatever, because he was down in the front. And it was like a moment, a, a brief moment of recognition yep. where I was like, oh, like Jon Stewart. Mm-hmm. And he was looking at me. And the vibe that I was getting is like, don't you fucking <laughs> dare talk to me. And like, kind of like an like anger. Like I, I, Oh, interesting. And like, I don't <laughs> think that... Uh, I don't think that he's an asshole or anything. I don't know him. You know, like I, I cannot imagine from the totality of the work that I've seen of his that he's not like in private, like a good and decent human being. Yeah. I don't mean to insinuate that, but like one of the things that I've sort of intuited about him, like in the, the wrapping of his show, where he just sort of vanished a little bit. Yeah. And in like you can see it in his advocacy work for nine eleven is that I think he's kind of traumatized by the work that he did. And ingesting all of the bile of our political system and its toxicity day after day after day. And I think it really took a toll on him in ways that people don't necessarily appreciate. I, w- I wonder if you're right. I mean, like, I-, I would understand how it could be that way. And when you- I imagine when you are at that level of fame and people know your work so well, they want more than you can give and they might not understand that. And uh, I have so many, I have so much sympathy for like, I have, I have so much understanding of wanting that moment with somebody, but then like, it's like, I don't think everybody, either you want too much, which is possible, right? You want like an interaction that you couldn't possibly have. Like, Hey, uh, you're my hero. And then John Stewart goes, let's be best friends or whatever, <laughs> which is like, that's not going to happen. Right. Or you don't exactly know what you expect from that. And and so it, not you, but like one might not know what to expect from that, like interaction. And so it kind of like, 
it, it's now like John Stewart's job or whoever's job to like manage that and wrap it up. And like, I think almost everybody, unless you're bothering them while they're doing something else or is a jerk, likes to hear like, Hey, your work means a lot to me. Thank you. And, and like, I, I think it, unless you're like interrupting someone's dinner, uh, that doesn't seem like too much to put on someone. But then beyond that, it's like, I always think when I, when I see or meet someone that I like really admire, it's like, well, other than that, what am I adding to their day? It's when you stand there for like an extra 15 seconds after you have that micro exchange yeah. where it's like, Hey, your work means a lot to me. Hey man, thanks. And then you're just like silent standing there. Right. <laughs> it's just like, like, it's not like whoever that is, is going to go like, and I really like what you do too. You know, like it's not, and, and I say that, and, and I don't mean that I'm not trying to belittle people who aren't in creative fields. I mean like myself, like if I met, uh, you know, whoever the Coen so, brothers, the Coen brothers, that's a perfect example. And I was like, I love your film so much. I, like I wouldn't, I, I couldn't expect them to be like, cool, man. And we are big fans of all of your work. I'd be like, what? <laughs> you know, that just isn't going to happen. But Come think, over for dinner. Yeah, exactly. Know? But so I think there's, I think just knowing that and going in, like not craving anything other than like the ability to tell someone that you appreciate them because it is such an asymmetrical relationship. So your book, yes. Um, you know, you're working on all this TV and it's like, like the way that your book reads in total feels like memoir. Thank you. Um, like I get a real sense of the arc of your life. I mean, at least like the bits and pieces that you share, but it does like, you know, it forms a, a reasonably full picture Thank you. from childhood to yeah. kind of where you are now. Sure. But it's not like the exhaustive, like no. in third grade, you know, like it's more like, you know, you pick these moments that are uh, definitive or illustrate something uh, in particular. And I guess I'm curious if that was the conception from the start or if you were just kind of writing these pieces um, disparately, and then they, they, you eventually realized that you had a book. So I went in, that's a great question. I started every answer with, so I'm like realizing that about myself and it is, uh, you know, something for me to hate later. Um, <laughs> they, th I came in to the, pro when I started writing the book, I wanted it to have like a fullness to it and, a and an arc to it. And I didn't come to the proposal knowing what that was. And my, it's like a great, um, credit to my agent Noah and my Noah who? uh Ballard okay and Stephanie Hitchcock my editor that we got it to the place where it is now and I think we can I came in with like Noah kind of when when I was working on the proposal give me lots of good advice about making it feel like it's the whole book is on theme and there are like things to take away from it that feels like a unified work and then with Stephanie I would turn in essays and drafts and choose your editor. Yes. At, at, um, Harper, Harper perennial. Yeah. And at my big, a lot of my big questions were like, am I sticking this landing of like, does it go, does it feel like I'm putting the, like, you know, building a house with all these bricks or is it just like, Hey, that's a bunch of neat bricks you piled up <laughs> over there. And at first it wasn't there. At first it was like, I wasn't the, the emotional heft. It wasn't, quite where it is now and the um the like thematic the themes and ideas that i really wanted to like highlight weren't as foregrounded and she gave such great notes and made such great edits of like thinning out stuff that was maybe fun but didn't get to the heart of the matter um or 
bolstering things that like be like kind of digging to a greater depth of sincerity instead of like kind of glib jokes across the surface. Uh, and it was like a really, so it was the intent from the beginning, but it was not an immediate success. And, and working with them was really helpful and, and, um, and informative to the, to the work as it is now. Well, then they did their job. That's great. They sure did. That's what you, I mean, like, what you they're amazing. For. Like I, I've worked with Noah for a long time and he, we, we started working together before I had like really much going on at all. And, and he just liked, someone sent him a blog I was writing and I say, I mean, this is in the acknowledgements in the book and I've said it to Stephanie's face, but like I met with a few different publishers and at a few different editors at different publishing houses. And I, one of the things I liked about her immediately is that she, I, I said, I've said this to her face that she's not impressed by my bullshit. Like as, cause as a standup and a professional writer, I can make things entertaining and, and like, fun for a number of pages, but I liked that she wasn't going to be like, Oh, that's fun. And then just like, let it slide. I like that. She was going to be like, no, but like, what is this about? What are we, what are we saying here? And, and so I, I think, again, I don't mean to talk in such lofty terms about my own book, which I think is mostly just like, it is a, a, I wanted it to be entertaining, but I also wanted people to come away with like a specific set of feelings that reflected my life and thoughts and stories in in certain ways. And I think like, thanks to her, we got there instead of it just being like a bunch of fun stories. Yeah. 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 And you know, I'm like, I feel like, uh, you have to sequence things. I mean, there's a chronology that you're following, Mm -hmm. but you know, when you're putting one of these collections together and you want it to feel unified and whole, um, like thematically, I guess to some extent, narratively, um, that can take some time and know-how and hopefully yeah. you get some good feedback from friends and your wife or whoever your, yeah. reader, your readers are. And then you have a great agent and editor to help yeah. you sort of set it down. It was really, it was a really cool experience to like fill it out to the point that it is now. So that like, that it's funny and fun and, and like a fast read were all things that I wanted. I wanted people to just kind of be like, Oh, that's wow. But also that like there you know, that it sticks with you in at least a little way. And there's like kind of a a resonance of like, oh yeah, this is like how a person thinks about the world. And, and to think about it in conversation with like, oh, I think, I think the world is this way, but this was an interesting take or like, oh, maybe, maybe you can take something from it for yourself. Or like, even if you're like this, I don't relate to this at all. I I don't know. This guy's brain is, is from space. Like at least I've articulated enough that you get where I'm coming from. Well, I think the thing that sticks with me the most is just this notion of trying to be a nice person in, in a, a, like an often shitty world Yeah, and trying to sort of, you know, know how to navigate that and modulate, um, your behavior accordingly, like, mm-hmm. especially when you're confronted with really extreme examples of not so niceness. Yeah. I, I think it's niceness and goodness and like when it's important to not be nice and when it's important, you know, when, uh, when it's valuable to be assertive or curt or like righteously angry about something and, and where, but how to like work towards kindness and like the value of doing that, even in small moments and arenas is something that I think about a lot and like when to stand up for people and how to do that better, even when it feels difficult and not like the, the, not the smooth way to go, but like that, that kind of like 
larger kindness sometimes supersedes niceness, even though like my inclination is just like, Hey, thanks. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I enjoyed it and I've, uh, enjoyed talking with you. Are you Thank working you so on, much? Are you working on another book or not yet? Okay. I kind of, I didn't want to, um, rush into something, uh, just because I was done with this project. So I'm taking a little time to like recalibrate and think about what the next big thing I want to work on on my own is, which is very exciting. And you're writing for TV. Mm hmm. And uh, you're doing stand-up. Yeah. And so people can get your album. They can watch your show on TV. Yep. Um, you got... I mean, we're going to plug your website. Thank you. Are you doing any tours, like comic uh, comedy dates that we should yeah, know about? Yeah, I've got... Um I don't know exactly when this is coming out, but like my website, joshgondelman.com has all the book events that I'll be doing and it's like updating all the time. And, uh, like I'm waiting for West coast. I'm doing some West coast stuff. Hopefully like at least LA and San Francisco, uh, maybe some festivals that, that haven't filled in yet. Um, adding Philly and Pro- and Rhode Island soon, but like I've got a bunch of New York events already. Um, you do stand up at your book events? Some of them are stand like some of them are shows with books for sale. Some of them are like an in conversation with. Some of them are reading signings. It all depends on the venue, and I feel like pretty adaptable to different venues. So it's like it all depends on where was interested in having me in what city and like what seemed like fun in certain places. Okay. Yeah. Well, people can check it out uh, at joshgondelman.com. It's good talking to you. Good to meet you. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Okay, everybody, there we go. That's Josh Gondelman. His new book is called Nice Try, Stories of Best Intentions and Mixed Results. Available from Harper Perennial, official publication date September 17th, 2019. As of the airing of this program, it is about to drop. Go get your copy immediately. Order it, pre-order it, go get it. Nice try. Stories of best intentions and mixed results. Josh Gondelman. You can find him on the internet again at uh, joshgondelman.com. You can follow him on Twitter and get a uh, pep talk at Josh Gondelman. I believe he's also on Instagram. You can see his work on the television with Jesus and Marrow, or uh, I guess if you watch like old episodes of Last Week Tonight. Or you can catch him on stage. I think he has his tour dates on his website. See some comedy. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. Thank you to OR Books for sponsoring the show. Don't forget to go get Exile, the new one from Belen, or Belen Fernandez. If you want to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. That's the email address. Let me know what you think. Every single episode of this program is offered freely, almost 600 and counting. It's a listener-supported show. If you want to throw a few bucks in the hat and tip your server, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. This program also has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. It's a good app. So uh, next week on the program, let me see here. Oh, Kimberly King Parsons is my guest. I'd like to thank Brad for the podcast.